I'm really glad that they arrived back safely. Huey came back last Sunday afternoon. Bob and Marcus came back yesterday. You know, last week I felt definitely weaker, you know, just uh, holding the line here at Cornerstone, um, just preaching and shepherding and trying to herald the Word and minister here. And I definitely sensed um, just an absence of key men in our church and in my life. And I was uh, in prayer for them, and I'm so thankful that they have returned and that we can uh, just rejoice in the good report uh, of what God did to glorify himself in Kazakhstan. Praise God. Great to hear from Pastor Peter and Yarda. Um, oh, how sweet it is to hear their voices and to see their expressions. Um, it would have been good. Look forward to uh, um, Bakichan coming. There's a possibility of him joining us in March and uh, just worshiping with us, maybe even teaching the Word at our church. So look forward to that. I also want to thank all of you who have been praying for me this past week. This past week was a memorable one for me. This past Tuesday was a day where I was invited to speak at Master's Seminary Chapel and to preach the Word of God before over 300 students at the seminary and um, the professors there. It was uh, you know, I, my wildest dream, sitting there all those years at chapel, kind of nodding off, you know. I never thought I would one day come and drive to seminary to speak at the chapel. All the professors were there. I mean, these guys, you know, they taught. Some of them taught MacArthur, like Dr. Thomas. I mean, he translated the New American Standard Bible, for goodness sakes. I mean, he wrote the Harmony of the Gospels, and I'm preaching on Matthew. What am I doing? You know, there's Dr. Roscoe. There's Dr. Barrick. I mean, he knows all the Semitic languages, like all of them. Not just Hebrew and Greek, but all of them. I mean... You know, Pettigrew's there, you know, uh, McDougal is there, my Greek professor, and uh, Felix is there. Allison wasn't there, but for Paul, Felix was there. And uh, Montoya is there. I mean, Alex is there, Pastor Montoya. And so to say that I was nervous is an understatement. I mean, I was just, it was just intense going there. And I told the students, you know, what can I teach you, men? that you have not or cannot learn from our professors. Um, there is nothing. Therefore, I'll share with you um, some truths that I learned from two non-master seminary professors, two professors that are not from this seminary. <clears throat> and the names of these, these professors are uh, my mistakes and my failures. Real, you know, good professors that teach me the Word of God, teach me my character and about ministry and about life and teach me about the issue of pride, how pride is the one besetting sin among leaders that makes them ineffective for the gospel ministry, makes them just utterly incapable of honoring the Lord in the right way. And then, you know, by God's grace, I mean, I just laid it on these guys thick. I I made it personal. You know, master's men, I'm a master's grad and I hear things and I know my own heart. We're known for a lot of things. We're known as, you know, just committed to scripture, sound doctrine, uh, right theology. We're committed to expository preaching. Master's men are known for diligence and commitment to the church and shepherding. But I told them we are not known for humility. We are not known as men who are gracious and gentle and meek and kind. Um, and that's, that ought not be. 
as men who know God and know God's Word, men who have been so privileged to be trained by this seminary, if we excel in any Christian characteristic, any Christian trait, it should be the one of humility. So, I mean, by God's grace, I just, you know, a brother was saying, I was just on fire up there. I was just unloading on these guys. I'm preaching to my own heart about humility and went to Peter's four marks of pride in his life. You know what Peter did? It's not the Lord. I mean, it is sin, but it's not a sin of commission, it's a sin of omission, right? All of us, we can see ourselves, and we have denied the Lord. But what made it sinful was his attitude before he denied the Lord, right? If, the, if his attitude before he denied the Lord was one of humility and dependence and brokenness, and he denied the Lord three times, a lot more grace can be given to Peter. But Peter, before he denied the Lord three times, he, you know, he was brash and arrogant, self-confident. He said, I'll never deny you. All these men are weak, but not me. I'll die with you. Try to protect Christ with a, with, with a sword. Refuse, wouldn't pray, refuse to pray. I mean, that, that pride in his heart caused him to, to fail miserably. And, and Christ's restoration to Peter in John 21 went through all of that and it was just, um, I, I, I was really thankful for the opportunity to minister there. I think I could die a happy man almost, you know, come full circle, just to be able to encourage the professors and exhort and challenge the students. The, resp- the response by God's grace was very, very positive. It was very, they were very gracious. All the professors came up, you know, and they were just thanking me and encouraging me. I even got a hug from Professor Montoya. You know, I never thought that happened, you know. All the professors so great. I was kind of tempted to ask them, can you go back and change my grade? <laughs> you know, now that, you know, we have this relationship. But I'll email them later. <laughs> um, even as many students were very gracious and were thankful. And I'm thankful for that. And it was great to see, you know, we're thinking about Marcus halfway around the world. But it was great to see Joe White, Joe Jung, and Jason and fellowship together, see them in seminary, see them, they weren't nodding out during a sermon, praise God, they were good examples, and it was a joy to fellowship with them, and see them be trained uh, for pastoral ministry, it was a great time, really thankful, thank you for your prayers, thank you for your support, I mean, I, I needed it, and I, I continue to need it, Wednesday night was another joy, I went to CCF at UC Irvine, it's a great time. There was a fraternity uh, nightclub action going on behind me in the next room, but I got a loud voice. I don't need a mic. I got a loud voice. I was preaching over them. I think they heard the gospel. Uh, I saw a lot I was preaching about the six marks, six uh, miracles surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. And it was amazing. It was a good group. Man, great job at UC Irvine. Just a great number of students gathered together. I mean, it was really a God-centered atmosphere. Students are encouraging one another. I mean, it was just sweet. It was a joy. I definitely see God working, being glorified there. And so I was greatly encouraged. Well, back to our study then now on the Holy Spirit. We've been going through John 14 and in our journey through uh, the six promises of the Lord taking a, just a brief pause, maybe a four-week, five-week pause on the Holy Spirit. 
after we conclude with the Gospel of John, we want to study 1 Corinthians. And in that study, we'll have an ample opportunity to study indefinitely the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But that's at least a year, maybe two years away. So I thought, we need to tackle the Holy Spirit here and now, before, because it is such an important uh, subject for believers. Again, as I said a few weeks ago, and again, reiterated last week, Jesus Christ is gone. We can long for Him and want to be with Him. We, should, we ought to. But the reality is, He has left us. He will come back, but He has left us. <coughs> in the intermeeting time, winning time, He has left us in the care of the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit. We are under His custodial care. Therefore, as New Covenant Christians, it is absolutely crucial for us to have a right understanding of the personhood and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you misunderstand and misapply these doctrines, it is to your own demise. No one is going to pay for it except yourself, your hearers, your friends, and your family, and myself as well. So as new covenant Christians under the care of the Holy Spirit, it is incumbent upon us to peer with precision and accuracy on this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the personhood and the nature in our first study. We looked at the, the permanent or the partial, uh, temporary indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The permanent, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Last week, remember, and they reminded me, a 61-minute study on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that was a long, in-depth study on, on, the, on spirit baptism. Today, for our remaining time, we will train our minds and our hearts on the topic of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The subject for our study this morning is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And our text is Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. We'll get to maybe verse 18. Now, before we start, the previous studies of indwelling and baptism... It is important that we have a right understanding, but it is not as crucial for us because the responsibility of, that, of those works is up to God. It is God's job. It's a unilateral contract. God said, I will indwell within you. I will baptize you. And the ball is on God's court, and God did it all, and God is faithful to His promises of indwelling in us permanently through the Holy Spirit, and also baptizing us into Christ and into the local church by the Holy Spirit. God is completely faithful to His work. So, you know, it is important to understand rightly, but whether we understand it or not, the reality is unchanged. Right? The reality is unchanged. Today's study is doubly important because this is the only command in the New Testament concerning the Holy Spirit. Concerning the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is our responsibility. The ball is on our court. And if we are confused, if we misapply, if we fail to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then we miss out on all the promises, all the benefits, all the blessings that come with the Holy Spirit Himself. Again, this tells us that salvation is unilateral. God does it all. It's free. Salvation is free. 
But sanctification, to grow as a Christian, to mature, to be godly, to grow in character, to be used by God, it's not free. It's not free. It costs. You have to pay. It costs. You have to sacrifice. If you don't pay, you will get nothing. I will get nothing. Remember that 80s show, right? Debbie Allen. <laughs> right? She was saying, oh, you guys are too young for this. Where are the married couples? There goes Mark. I'll talk to him. Maybe he'll remember. <laughs> remember Debbie Allen? She said, you want fame? Right? It's <laughs> the girls know. <laughs> you got you got to pay, and it begins right here. You got to pay here. Well, same thing for our sanctification. You want to grow, you want to be mature, you want to be godly. Well, you got to pay. And where do you start? You start here with the Holy Spirit. This is where it begins, folks. It begins with being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you this. Let me see something here. I think it's true. The church, by and large, has completely missed it. Christians, by and large, a vast majority of Christians are just confused, have a convoluted, compromised, shallow understanding of the filling of the Holy Spirit, and therefore, they practice it all wrong. And even those who have the right doctrine of being filled with the Holy Spirit are unfaithful, are utterly disobedient, in terms of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you might say, man, Pastor James, that's pretty harsh. That's a broad, you know, broad stroke there. How can you say that? Well, I can say that because looking at marriages in the church, looking at families, Christian families in the church, it is clear from Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that the first place where being filled with the Holy Spirit bears fruit, is the family. The first place where the fruit of the Spirit is produced is in the husband-wife relationship. 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 22, what is it? Husbands. Because you're filled with the Holy Spirit, what do you want to do? You want to love your wife. What do you mean? It means, husbands, are you at home? You know, let's say you have a right doctrine of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Husbands, are you at home loving your wife, loving your family? And, and not loving her like giving her nice things. You know, not saying, you know, sweet nothings and buying flowers and cards and vacuuming the house. I mean, you know, non-Christians do that. How do Christian husbands love their wives? They do it like Christ loved the church, by washing her with the water of God's Word. Making her holy, teaching and shepherding her with the Word of God. Striving to present her to God as a radiant bride, holy and blameless. That's the mark of a spirit-filled husband. And what is the mark of a spirit-filled wife? She submits to her husband with joy, as unto the Lord. Ephesians 5. She respects her husband. She honors him. What about for a father? Mark of being spirit-filled is at home. He does not exasperate his children. He does not provoke his children to anger. And, and, uh, Christian fathers listen in many ways by their lack of spiritual leadership, by their laziness, by their inconsistency, by their infidelity to the Word of God, or their uh, the unfaithfulness to keep their promises. All these things, right, provoke a child to anger. When you make promises to your children and you don't follow through, when you're not home, when you're not 
And especially if you're not teaching them the Word of God and disciplining them, raising up, training them in the admonition of the Lord, then you're provoking your children to anger. And for children, are you honoring and obeying your parents? I mean, from the children's ministry here, you know, to the youngest child here, to the junior high students, you say you're spirit-filled, to the collegians, young adults, to marrieds, are we at home with our parents honoring them, respecting them, and if we're under their authority at home, are we obeying them? This is the proof, these are the proofs of being spirit-filled. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. These are the proofs of right understanding and right application of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I can say with just somewhat confidence that Christians as a whole have completely missed it. Christianity Today had an article past month, The Crumbling Institution of Marriage in the Church among evangelicals, among Christians. The institution of marriage is just decaying, it is crumbling, it is falling apart. Husbands are no longer leading, no longer shepherding, teaching the word. Wives are not submitting, they're not respecting, they're not honoring. Children are out of control. The divorce rate among Christians is equal to or above non-Christians. It says the institution of marriage that should be protected by the church is anything but. It is being devastated. And that tells me that whatever their doctrinal statement might say, by and large, most Christians have no idea what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And even if they do, they are utterly unfaithful to apply these things in their own home, in their own families. Well, Ephesians 5, three imperative commands, starting with verse 15. Three commands are, look, understand from verse 17 and be filled. Three commands by Paul. Each of these has an opposite counterpart. Verse 15, Paul says, look carefully how you walk. Examine, take care, take heed how you walk. Walk as wise, not as unwise. Verse 16 tells us what it means to walk unwisely. Walking wisely, excuse me, means, verse 16, you make the best use of the time. You realize that time is limited. That we all have a number of days allotted to us. And in heaven, we can no longer evangelize, no longer grow, degreed growth. No longer can we encourage and minister and serve one another. Therefore, knowing that time is short, we make the best use of our time. That's living wisely. What is... Walking unwisely, you waste time. You spend time. You throw away time on temporal things, on secular things. That is living unwisely. Paul says, look carefully how you live. Look carefully how you use your time. Why? He says in verse 16, because the days are evil. Therefore, verse 17, do not be foolish. Do not be foolish. And what does it mean to be foolish? You are foolish if you don't know what God's will is. If you don't know the Bible. If you don't understand what God's will for you in terms of your salvation, in terms of your sanctification. You don't know God's will for you as a husband, as a wife, as a father, uh, as a son, as a daughter, as a, wa- as a mother, as a Christian, as a worker, as a student, as a brother or sister in Christ, as a minister in the church. If you don't know God's will in all these manifold ways, you know, you, you 
You're a fool. You're being foolish. What wisdom is, you understand the Lord's will. You understand what God wants, what God desires. What is the Lord's will? The foundation of God's will is found in verse 18. God's will is not for us to be drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation, which leads to waste. But God's will, the Lord's will is that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That we are filled with the Holy Spirit. What a meaning-filled, weighty metaphor here in Ephesians 5.18. J.O. Buswell said, quote, Of all the metaphorical expressions, of all of them used in the Bible, to describe the ongoing of the life of the regenerated persons, perhaps the most striking is found in the words, Be filled with the Spirit. Dr. Pettigrew said, quote, Not only is, is it the most striking and dramatic of the metaphors for spirituality, but also it, is, it might be the most controversial and confused metaphor. End quote. Much confusion in being filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't there? And what causes so much confusion? Eh, false teachers. I mean, just... You know, they just kind of take the Bible and use it for their own means. Um, careless study of the Bible, imposing our understanding, um, mysticism, experimentalism, uh, just a Gnostic idea into the Bible rather than, than exegeting the truth from the Scriptures. You know, false experiences are a source of much confusion. You know, one major reason for confusion in this metaphor is just bad songs. Like, bad songs. Like, songs are powerful, aren't they? Like, I remember songs that I listened to when I was, like, in third grade. Right? My age is going to show, but... Like, conjunction, function. What's your function, right? <laughs> you know, or there's a story of a lovely lady. I'll never forget that song for the rest of my life. I mean, songs are powerful. They're memory tools. They're teaching tools. You teach a child a song, you teach that child for life. And growing up, we had some bad songs about coming of the Holy Spirit. Like one song is, I can feel you. Oh, let's all sing together. <laughs> Flowing through me. Holy Spirit, come and fill me up. And then for emphasis, repeat, come and fill me up. Right? I mean, how many of those songs did we sing when we were growing up? Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, touch me. Holy Spirit, anoint me. Holy Spirit, hold me. Dwell within me. So on and so on and so on. And so all of this, you know, just convergence of just uh, reasons with false teachers, bad theology, bad study, with uh, careless study, experimentalism, imposing thoughts and bad songs. You bring it all together in a, you know, combination plate and you get just a confused understanding of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So let me just start by saying, by sharing with you four proposed interpretations of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you've heard me for any amount of time, you know that I'm setting these guys up and saying that they're wrong, right? <laughs> you know, what can I do? I'm a pastor of the church. I'm, it's not a, this is not a college course. It's not a seminary where I present the views and you decide. I'm here to present my views on what I believe the Bible teaches. And God will deal with me ever so harshly before the day of the Lord. But I believe this is what the Bible teaches. So let me just share with you four proposed interpretations of being filled 
and why I believe they're wrong. First view is that it is the same as spirit baptism. It is the same thing as last week. It is this secondary experience that results in a quant- immediate quantum leap in your sanctification and also power for ministry. You're just a regular Christian, regular Joe, just kind of meandering to the Christian life, and you have this experience with the Holy Spirit, and you're baptized by the Holy Spirit this time. You go through, some, you go through a meeting, through a conference, through a retreat, or something spectacular happens to you, and you are zapped, and in that instant, you know, victory to victory, no dry season, you know, you're just filled, you're baptized with the Spirit, you're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So for them, baptism, anointing, filling are synonymous. They're interchangeable metaphors. And it, this comes out because of a very cursory, very elementary study of the Bible. They're not cutting the word straight. They're not looking at the text with a, a lawyer, with, with, with a surgical precision. They're just kind of haphazardly studying the Bible and interchanging all these metaphors and results in filling is just another word for spirit baptism. Second view is that a secondary spiritual experience, but it is not spirit baptism. It is not spirit baptism. So one way to coin this uh, view is that it's, there's one spirit baptism, but there are many events of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So being filled are these events that happen to you. during a crisis. Something happens to you. You get into a car accident. You get ill. Your church falls apart. You have struggles in your marriage. Your children are sick. It is during those crisis events that you call out to God with fasting and mourning. And, and then at that time, you have an experience of being filled powerfully by the Holy Spirit. Um, John Wolverd said, Baptism of the Spirit happens once for all that salvation. The filling of the Spirit may occur many times and is an important aspect of spiritual experience. Charles Rari believes that spirit baptism happens to everybody, but filling of the Holy Spirit happens to only certain Christians. Only certain Christians. So there are two categories of Christians. Christians, and then the Spirit-filled Christians. Another dividing um, the Christian category, Christian, Christian church, the unity of the church in two groups. John Stott is a proponent of this view. He believes that R.A. Torrey, D.L. Moody, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Piper are wrong to believe in a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, he says, instead of a second baptism, there is a latter experiences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gives an illustration through his own, a testimony of his own life. It was a young pastor ministering, and it was just, there was no power. And then he went to a meeting, and at that meeting he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that point on, from, from that, after that experience, his ministry was powerful. His preaching his teaching was anointed, was filled with the Spirit's power. Third interpretation is that it is the receiving of the Holy Spirit by portions or by degrees. It's like receiving a portion of the Bible. It is, it is understanding the word being filled with our 21st century mindset rather than the 1st century mindset. Right? It's interpreting 
that metaphor with our understanding of being filled rather than Paul's understanding of being filled. So we use being filled. How do we use it? I'm going to go to Arco gas station. I've got five bucks. Just give me a quarter tank. Well, with the gas prices now, <laughs> give me like two, two gallons worth of gas. Right? I'm running low on fuel. I've got more money. Fill her up halfway. Or I'm, I've got money. I've got $30. Fill my tank up. And that's how we impose that understanding to the Holy Spirit. And so, oh, Holy Spirit's running low in my life. I'm running on empty. Look at my, my lights going on. Holy Spirit, you know, recharge. So we go and come and fill me up, Jesus. Oh, man, today I only got like half a tank full. So I can't really minister at home today, you know. Oh, today, man, the sermon was great. The songs were awesome. Holy Spirit was flowing today, right? Or Holy Spirit's flowing in, you know, Vancouver or Toronto or in, in Florida. The Holy Spirit's flowing. So I need to go and, and get my fill of the Holy Spirit and then you are filled to the brim. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the idea. That's just the wrong understanding of pneumatology. Every Christian uh, not only has the fullness of the Holy Spirit indwelling in him, but possesses him in completeness. Holy Spirit is not divided up. It's that, you know, Luke Skywalker philosophy. Use the force, Luke, as if the Holy Spirit is His power and we kind of use like 30% of it or 50% as if He's not a person. Like, you know, we can't. You know, He's a person. We don't cut up the Holy Spirit and take parts. Um, Jesus said in John 3.34 that God gives the Spirit without measure. He doesn't give some Christians 30% and some Christians 70 No, He gives all Christians 100% of the Holy Spirit and baptizes them completely in Christ and into the church. And the fourth in- interpretation is somewhat like the first one. It is that it is a secondary experience, but it is a charismatic experience. It is a supernatural event evidenced by the speaking of foreign or unknown tongues, unknown languages. It is the idea, do not get drunk on wine, but get drunk on the Holy Spirit. Right? It's a wrong use of the analogy. It's stretching the analogy too far. So when you get drunk on wine, you just go crazy. You can't, you know, you're inebriated. You can't control your mind and your faculties. And that's what it means to be drunk with wine. So being filled with wine, or Holy Spirit must mean the same thing. So you are drunk with the Holy Spirit. So you are slain, you make animal noises, you say weird things, you shake, you roll around, and for hours upon hours, you know, you're just in this like ecstatic, happy state of communion with God. And that's being filled with the Holy Spirit. The powerful zap, an experience again. And notice the keyword experience that results in a quantum leap, an immediate leap in spirituality, maturity, and powerful ministry. Now, what is the reason? I mean, what is the biblical, I mean, I would say exegetical reason for their error? There's many sociological reasons for their error, right? I mean, you get well-meaning believers, I mean, Christians, who really want to serve God, who want to know Him, who, they, you know, good Christians who want to experience the power of God and overcome sin in their life. And you tell them you experienced this and they'll overcome sin or their husbands will be saved or your children will come back to the Lord. 
I mean, you can understand sociological reasons. I mean, I don't fault people for doing that. It's understandable to me. I mean, I, I can see myself doing that. If I'm in that vulnerable situation and someone that I respect and trust teaches me such things. I mean, so there are many reasons like that that results in these views. But I just want to sh- just spend our remaining time looking at the exegetical reason, the biblical reason why they have a wrong understanding of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, the main reason is they mix biblical metaphors. They mix biblical metaphors. And Dr. Pettigrew, God bless him, you know, it's so helpful. I mean, the Holy Spirit, it's so hard to understand. The Holy Spirit, ecclesiology, the church, and eschatology, these are very difficult doctrines because they come at the end. They're the last on the, the string of theologies, of doctrines. They're very difficult. And Dr. Pettigrew has done it. It's a great service to the church uh, at large for, in his book, New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us the main exegetical reason is the mixing of biblical metaphors. What is a metaphor? It is a figure of speech. It is a way of expressing a difficult concept by using a figure of speech that is understandable to us. Like... Uh, a simile is, the, is more explicit. Simile uses the word like like or as. Metaphor is implicit. An implicit figure of speech to describe a difficult concept in a more concrete way. For example, some biblical metaphors are, I was meditating on this this week. Psalm 26, Yahweh, God is a strong tower. He is a rock. He is our refuge. It's a metaphor. God is not literally, you know, a strong tower or a refuge. But that's the meaning that, that comes out from that metaphor. He's the one where we can stand upon and be secure. He's the one we can find shelter. Uh, word of God is a fire. Uh, Jeremiah, right, 23, I believe. It is a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. Um, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the bread of life. He's the uh, way, the truth, and life. All these are metaphors. Uh, you and I, Christians, are salt and light. We are salt and light. Not literally, but it's a figure of speech explaining uh, the, 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 the concept that we are a per, uh, preserving uh, um, source in this world, in this depraved world. We are a source of truth as we shine the light of Christ. So New Testament writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, employ many metaphors to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we will study more next week. But they want to have readers understand just the various ministries of the Holy Spirit. But as we interpret these metaphors, we must be careful to interpret each metaphor in its own context. Interpret in its own context. We must not just take metaphors arbitrarily out of everywhere and unify them and make one label, assign one meaning to the metaphors when they're used in different contexts. Some of you guys are like, what are you talking about, James? Here, this will help you. Um, help me. Um, like lion, your, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion waiting to devour someone. So... Lion is a metaphor for the devil. Therefore, we can say lion equals bad. 
right? Lion equals no good, right? And, we just, and we'll say, okay, yeah, every time the Bible says lion, and the Bible talks about lion, it's not a good thing, it's not a good metaphor. But also in Revelation, Jesus called what? The lion from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is called a lion. Therefore, is Jesus bad? No. Therefore, the metaphor of lion is constrained by the context. The interpretation of that metaphor is determined by the immediate context. Well, same thing for the metaphor of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well-meaning Bible students have gathered all the occurrences of being filled by the Holy Spirit and put them in one category, one interpretation. And therefore, that results in this erroneous understanding of Ephesians 5.18. They think what Moses meant in Exodus 34 and what Luke meant in Luke chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 and what Paul meant in Ephesians 5.18 is all the same when they are not the same. In the Old Testament, men and women were uniquely filled. They were specially filled by the Holy Spirit for unique purposes. In Exodus chapter 34, 31, excuse me, it says that, the, that Bazalel, son of Uri, was filled with the Spirit of God. For what? He was filled with the Spirit of God for the purpose of skill and ability and knowledge and all kinds of crafts. So God said, use him to make the temple, to make the tabernacle and to make the temple. He was employed for that purpose because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, talking about John the Baptist, he says he will never drink wine, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. When Elizabeth, Luke 141, heard Mary's greeting, John the Baptist leaped in her womb and she was filled with the Holy Spirit and she broke out in prophecy. She broke out in song. Likewise, in Luke 1.67, his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he started to prophesy. Acts 2.4, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, divinely given special filling of the Holy Spirit where he powerfully proclaimed the gospel the leaders of Israel, condemning them for their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Acts 4.8, again, when he was persecuted by the Sanhedrin, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and declared the Word of God. And so these well-meaning Bible students look at all these uses of being filled with the Holy Spirit and they go, wow, it means you're, you're specially filled. You're, you have this experience and you're filled for the purposes of special ministry. And then they go to Ephesians 5.18 and they say, okay, here is another instance of being filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore this special filling is to be repeated for us. Well, that is where they err. We need to interpret each metaphor in its own context. Interpret filling in Exodus 31 in that context. What's the authorial intent of Moses? Likewise, Luke acts, authorial intent of Luke acts, interpreting his metaphor as he used it in his own context. In Ephesians 5.18, we must interpret this metaphor in its own context as well. And I want to defend to you, show to you, that in Ephesians 5.18, 
Paul is not calling for a repetition of the special, special filling that is found in the Old Testament or in Acts of the Holy Church. He's not calling us to an experience. In fact, he's calling us to be influenced by the Holy Spirit continually. He's not calling us to an experience. He's calling us to a process, a day in, day out, moment by moment, being influenced and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Paul uses this parallel. We find Paul's parallel in other um, letters of Paul. Turn with me to Colossians 3, 16. And we see a direct parallel here. In 3.18, uh, all the way to the end of the chapter, Paul talks about husbands, wives, fathers, children, slaves. So it is directly parallel to Ephesians 5 and 6. He sets that up by verse 16. That the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and just like Ephesians 5, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. The idea here is letting the Word of God dwell in you richly, a continual dwelling, a continual abiding, having the Word of the Holy Spirit ruling in our hearts. It's not an experience. It is not an event. It is a day-in and day-out lifestyle. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul employs another metaphor to explain the ministry of the Holy Spirit in terms of filling. Galatians 5.16, But I say, and he uses the metaphor of walking, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the idea here is being filled. The idea is having the Word of God dwell in us richly. It is the idea of walking. Back to Ephesians 5.18. Let's look at this verse together. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's only mention of being filled with the Holy Spirit in all his writings. This is the only command given to us concerning the Holy Spirit. No command to have the Holy Spirit indwell in us. No command to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. But here is a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this tells us that to be filled with the Holy Spirit for a believer is not an option, but it is a mandate that no Christian can fulfill God's will for his life without being filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea is one of control and influence. As someone is drunk with wine, and that wine that dwells within them influences them and even controls them to behave in a natural way. Instead of that, be filled in your heart, in your mind, in your soul with the Holy Spirit so that you act in an unnatural way. And what is that unnatural way? You act in a way of love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These things are natural for a sinner. But we have these things abiding in our lives 
because we are filled, influenced, and controlled by the Holy Spirit. The comparison is in the matter of... Maybe control is too strong of a word. I mean, unless you're just completely just, you know, drunk. I mean, a drunk person still has some semblance of control. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He doesn't come to us and embarrass us. You know, we are not drunk with the Holy Spirit or we do things we don't want to do. We start making noises or we lose control. No, the Holy Spirit, the gentleman, works through our minds and there's an influence in our lives where we are free. We can choose to sin or choose to submit to the uh, will of the Holy Spirit. It is our choice. And that is why Paul says, you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The best, best word picture is the idea of a big mast of a ship and the wind comes and it fills the ship, fills the mast and it controls the ship where the pilot wants to go. And it's the idea of let the Holy Spirit influence, abide in you, control your thoughts, and lead you in the way that God wants us to go. Um, the idea tells us that it is not an experience. It is not an event. It is in the present tense. It is the idea of be continually influenced and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Cross-reference with Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. It is the idea of keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. Day by day, moment by moment, submitting your life, yielding to the Spirit of God. Again, it is not an experience. It is not an event. It is not some intense, supernatural, charismatic experience. It is not a secondary experience of the Holy Spirit like the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is not, again, this gradual possessing of the Holy Spirit, but it is a normal, mundane, very mundane, very natural, yielding our wills to the instructions of the words of the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God, moment by moment, submitting the commands of Scripture. It's simple. It is basic. It is normal. So if you moment by moment Submit yourself and your heart, soul, and mind and your behavior to the Word of God. And you're being filled with the Holy Spirit. To the degree you are not, to that degree you're not being filled by the Holy Spirit. Up to now, it has been a lot of theology, a lot of instruction, a lot of teaching. You know, I want to congratulate you guys. We've turned the corner here. That was all foundation. From this point on, the next two or three studies, it'll be very practical, very relevant. Next week, we'll address the issue. So, okay, I believe in this being filled with the Holy Spirit. How can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? And we're going to spend at least a certain, maybe two, on just spiritual disciplines. How this kind of like experiential approach to Christianity, I just want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and let this, Holy Spirit lead me is going to lead you to really a chaotic Christian life. You need to discipline yourself. You you want to be a mature Christian, you need to um, discipline your time, your time in the Word, your time in prayer, in fellowship, in ministry, evangelism, requires sacrifice, diligence, requires discipline. That's the best word. Without discipline, you will not grow as a Christian. 
the next week or two is going to be just looking at spiritual disciplines of how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Very practical. And then our last study will be on the spiritual gifts. Hopefully everyone, by the end of that sermon, will discover their spiritual gift um, or discover how they can um, honor the Lord with their lives. So we've turned the corner. We'll get into the practical aspects next week. Do come back. Our Father, are we we now going to begin with the Holy Spirit by faith and continue in our sanctification by works? May it not be. May May we be empowered by the Holy Spirit for our Christian lives. May we not live our Christian lives based on our flesh, powered by our own wills, motivated by our own pride, our own our own desires. May we be motivated and strengthened for the purpose of godliness by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells within us. May the truths that we have learned today cause us, Lord, to be sober in our approach to the Holy Spirit and very practical, very very mundane, yielding ourselves moment by moment to the truths of Scripture. Therefore, we are controlled and influenced not by this world, not by our own sinful flesh, not by philosophies and ideas of this age, but that we are filled, controlled, influenced, and moved by the words of the Holy Spirit, by the truths of Scripture. Lord, may our ministry, our evangelism, our missionary endeavors, as we heard about today, be motivated by the Holy Spirit as well. May it not be out of works of the flesh, but by a genuine submission to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our church so that you would receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.